Thank you. I don't know if I can follow that. I don't know if I can tell you anything as amazing as that, um, that Jesus heals. <laughs> but I will try and tell you something. Um, so first of all, let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would give me the words to convey your message for us today, that you would give us ears to hear the truth, that we would hear truth from what you give us today, that we would know you better more deeply and follow you more closely. Amen. Amen. And um, it's interesting what uh, was happening in the worship time that, um, and that we were singing songs um, that kind of reflect what I'm going to talk about today. That often happens. Funny that, isn't it? How God goes, oh, well, let's sing this song. <laughs> so that's really great. Um, we were singing that song which um, says, let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run. Today I'm going to talk to you about mountains, and I'm a runner, and it's marathon day. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, I haven't been running on any mountains. <laughs> That's a bit too difficult for me. <laughs> there was a race last year on Box Hill called the Tough Ten, and it was a 10K up Box Hill, but I was chicken. I did not enter, so I'm afraid I don't have any stories for you today about running on mountains. The closest I've come is family walks up mountains, um, I remember when we were young, me and my sister, actually it was a volcano, I think. We were walking up a volcano with our family. She was only about three, so I must have been six or seven. And uh, she got a little bit too close to the edge of this volcano. And my dad's hand just kind of swooped down and like grabbed her up before she went over the edge. So <laughs> that's like the closest that I've come to a mountaintop. Um, apart from skiing, actually, there's been a few, mo a few holidays, skiing holidays. So... Lots of my memories on real mountains are of me sitting in the snow my, on my bottom with a snowboard or skis strapped to my feet, just sobbing in tears. <laughs> that is not exactly what I'd call a mountaintop moment. But today we're going to talk about the transfiguration, which is in Matthew 17. And this is a mountaintop moment. We're going to look at it in the context of discipleship. So Jesus took with him some of his disciples, including Peter. And we're going to look at what happened, why it happened, and what that means for us. We have the expression in the English language, mountaintop experience. But where does it originate? Well, it does originate from the Bible, because there are a few characters in the Bible who God had dealings with on various mountaintops. So the phrase has come to mean a moment of transcendence or epiphany when God speaks to his people, um, in particular, an experience of significant revelation given by God. And the transfiguration is Peter's experience of significant revelation from God. We're going to look at Peter's mountaintop moment. So let me read for you the passage. It's from Matthew 17, and we'll start at verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. 
If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So let's look at what happened, why it happened, and what that means. This is really quite a complex passage that some well-renowned theologians disagree on. Um, The Bible doesn't actually say why it happened. It's not there in print for us, like spelled out exactly why it happened or what it all means. So there are some different schools of thought, and I'm not a well-renowned theologian, but I believe that God wants us to pick out today some observations and ideas of what might have been going on. And what actually happened is that the glory of God was revealed. Sometimes it's helpful to look at what comes immediately before a passage of the Bible, what happened in the story before, to get the context and to get to the point of what actually happened. And it's important for this story because the passage I just read begins after six days this happened. And... That tells us, it's it's quite a precise and short amount of time, so that tells us that it's linked to the passage before and what happened before. It shows there's a link. So what happened before? Well, firstly, there was Peter's confession of Christ in Matthew 16, verses 15 to 16, say, But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So that comes immediately before the transfiguration. And then just after that, Jesus predicts his death as well. Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So firstly, Peter's saying, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the one, the Messiah. And then he's arguing with Jesus about what Jesus says is going to happen. And Jesus is predicting his death. And these two things are really significant to have in the back of your mind when we're thinking about the transfiguration. This is about Peter and his understanding of who Jesus is. He said, Jesus, you're the Messiah, and then he gets confirmation of that. It's a further revelation for Peter of who Jesus is. 
Peter sees something of the glory of God. Jesus is there, brilliant white, you know, radiant with the glory of God. And Peter gets to see it. The glory of God is being revealed. It says he was transfigured before them. Transfigured means to transform into something more beautiful or elevated, to change in outward form or appearance, to transform, change, alter, convert, metamorphose, vary, modify, transmute, mutate, reshape, renew, or revolutionize. This is a big deal. He's changed physically, like transformed before them. The light coming from within Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The disciples were seeing him as he was when he was in heaven and as he will be. They're getting a glimpse of his divinity, like really before their eyes. And Peter said that Jesus was the Messiah. And now he gets confirmation of that because he literally sees him with his eyes as the Messiah in his glory. And the disciples knew the Old Testament. They knew their stuff. And they knew the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And in the book of the prophet Isaiah, it says, A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The beginning of that passage is quoted at the beginning of the Gospels, where they relate it to John the Baptist, a voice preparing the way for the Lord. Um, and the disciples would have known it, and it says that the glory of the Lord will be revealed, i.e. Jesus. Jesus will be the glory of the Lord being revealed. And this, the transfiguration, is the start of the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus has come. His glory will be more fully revealed at the cross and at the resurrection but in the, oh, and the empty tomb. But at the, at the transfiguration, we, the disciples see with their eyes the glory of the Lord being revealed and the start of that. So that's what happened. But why did it happen? For whose benefit did it happen? The disciples expected to see Elijah coming at some point to herald the Messiah. And that's what prompted their conversation about John the Baptist later when they're coming down the mountain. So it's interesting that Elijah and Moses appeared. Malachi 4 verse 5 says, See, I will send you the prophet of Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So the disciples would have known that prophecy and they would have been expecting Elijah to be the one who heralds the Messiah. That's what prompted them to ask Jesus about it when they're coming down. But can you, re are you, can you really be the Messiah if Elijah hasn't come to kind of declare and prepare the way? But the fact that Jesus' conversation with Moses and Elijah wasn't recorded means that for us, the important thing to note is just that they were there, simply they were there. We're not supposed to read into what they talked about because that's not recorded for us. If it was important, then it would be there. In Luke 9.31, it says they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. But there's no more detail than that. 
Some theologians have said it's possible that Jesus was struggling and that he needed their support or their wisdom to, to get him to the cross. But that's a lot of assumption. If it's not there in the passage, then we don't need to read it in. There's lots we can take from what is actually written there. And if you compare it to the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying before his arrest, it does say that he was struggling then. In Luke 22, it says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So if Jesus was struggling at the time of the transfiguration, it probably would have just said it like it does in the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't need to read things into it. So... From Peter's point of view, what does the appearance of Moses and Elijah mean? Well, first of all, it reinforces that Jesus is the Messiah. Because these two Old Testament figures appear, Moses and Elijah, like, they're dead. They're not, they're not like, on earth anymore. They're supposed to be in heaven. And here they are appearing with Jesus. That's pretty crazy, a crazy vision. Um, and so it reinforces that Jesus must be God because this crazy thing happens and it couldn't have physically happened any other way. Jesus is the Messiah. But also, as I said, the disciples know their Old Testament. Moses represents the law because he's the guy who got the Ten Commandments on a mountain. And Elijah was known as the father of the prophets. So he like represents all the prophets. So we read that Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus, and then they fade away, like the disciples fall to the ground, and, and then when they look up, just Jesus is there. So that's um, a symbol of the fact that Jesus fulfills and surpasses the law and the prophets, and they fade away, and then just Jesus is there, and he's the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. And then we also get Peter saying about building shelters. Now, some renowned theologians have said that that could be a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles um, in the Jewish calendar when they made like temporary shelters out of branches and it was a celebration of God's deliverance and continued provision. And it might be that, but actually it's more likely that Peter was scared and confused and babbling. And that's what it says in Mark 9, verse 6, that um, Peter was really scared and talking nonsense. He didn't know what to say, so he just was like, let's do this. But also, it's possible that he wanted to stay in that moment. He wanted to keep them there forever. Let's build a tent, build a shelter, and just stay here in our holy huddle on the mountain. (laughs) It was so amazing. He just wanted to stay in that mountaintop moment. And who wouldn't, hey? Who wouldn't? The other reason we know that this is for the benefit of the disciples and not for Jesus is that there's the audible voice of God. Now, this is crazy. The audible voice of God. It reflects what what God said at Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom who I love. With him I am well pleased. But then there's this addition on the end, listen to him. That's not for Jesus' benefit. Jesus is the one that's supposed to be listened to. This is for the disciples' benefit. Will you listen to him? And the original word used in the Greek can mean listen, and it can also mean obey. So this is a command, God saying, listen and obey. This is my son, listen to him. So this confirms that this really is an experience for the disciples. God is speaking to them. So what's the effect on Peter? 
Well, Peter's had this revelation of the glory of God and who Jesus is. And we've seen that he previously struggled to listen. For example, when he argued with Jesus about the need for him to die in the passage immediately before, when Jesus said he was going to the cross and Peter said, no, this shall never happen to you. So he previously struggled to listen to Jesus and then God, the audible voice of God tells him, listen to him. So after this, he walked more closely with Jesus because he knew who Jesus was. He was under no illusion. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. So it looks like God was strengthening the disciples for the journey to Jerusalem and Jesus' death that lay ahead. Now, Peter is most famous for his denial of Jesus around the time of his trial, like in Matthew 26. So did it really strengthen him and increase his faith? Because then we see Peter outside the trial going, no, no, I didn't, need, didn't know him, I'm not one of his followers. So actually, Lord, did it work? <laughs> he had this mountaintop experience and this revelation of the glory of God, but then he denied Jesus and said, no, no, I'm not with him. But that isn't the end for Peter. Yes, that's what we usually remember him for, but that's not the end for him. He's reconciled to Jesus after the resurrection, when Jesus gives him this opportunity, saying, do you love me? Yes, Lord. And after that, he's the guy who builds the church. He's the guy who goes out and tells people about Jesus. So we see that he has confidence to minister with authority and faith to obey Jesus' commands and build the church. We can see that this was obviously a pivotal moment for him in 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 to 18. So Peter's like writing to the church and he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So Peter had this revelation of the glory of God and he went out with confidence and told people about Jesus the Messiah. And he's pointing to this moment when he's writing to the church saying, this isn't a story. I heard the audible voice of God telling me that Jesus is his son. And he's pointing to this pivotal moment in what happened for him. So what about for us? That's what happened for Peter. Well, for us, these experiences of the Holy Spirit that might not be like on an actual real mountaintop, might well be, but these mountaintop moments where we get a further revelation of the glory of God, the purpose of them is to give us confidence to minister with authority and faith to obey his commands because we see that he really is God. They're supposed to make a difference. They're not just experiences for experience sake. They're to expand our understanding of God and who he is. And we can't stay in them forever like Peter wanted to, like hunkering down on the mountaintop just with the audible voice of God, because the purpose is to strengthen us for what God has planned for us to do. Nikki Gumbel says, mountaintops inspire us, but valleys mature us. 
The mountaintop experiences don't make us more like Jesus. We have to continue on with the journey for that in the trials. They're intended to help us journey with him more closely on the road ahead. In our journey of discipleship, they're intended to help us to follow him more closely. And they help us through the times of struggle in the desert place or the wilderness. When we think, oh God, I can't see you, where are you God? But then we remember the times when God came in power. So as well as our daily quiet time and when we're thinking about our journey of discipleship, we need to make time for significant mountaintop experiences and be open to them. They're something different. Like special date nights in a marriage, you know? Me and Paul eat together nearly every day, but we still set time aside for significant conversations and times together, like special date nights on anniversaries and things, so that we can get to know each other even more deeply and journey more closely in the road ahead. And yeah, that can happen while we're just like watching TV and having dinner at the same time. But you know, if you really set time aside, then amazing things can happen in any relationship if you spend time together. And sometimes it requires effort to get to that place of revelation. Peter had to go up a mountain, and it doesn't even say just a mountain. It wasn't Box Hill, you know, it says a high mountain. Peter had to go trekking up a high mountain. So sometimes it can take a little bit of effort. We need to follow Jesus' leading. It is a gift from God when he chooses, but we need to be open to it. You know, he might be calling you one day to come to the front of church, and for someone, that might be a massive effort. It might feel like walking up a mountain. God, really, you want me to go to the front of church and be prayed for? Or he might be asking you to go on a retreat day or to Ashburnham or, you know, something like that where you really put yourself forward and set aside time to hear from God. So how do we do it? We need to listen when we pray. We need to listen to the leading of Jesus. What does Jesus want me to do? And occasionally set aside prolonged periods for listening and being in God's presence. This sounds like, you know, a setup for everyone needs to go to Ashburnham. And you do. <laughs> but, but Dale didn't tell me to say it. I'm just saying, you know, we need, it's really good if we can give opportunities for God to speak to us when we've got significant periods of time to listen and not be worrying about, oh, I need to do the washing up and the laundry and, you know, all the things, or I need to be at work in 10 minutes, you know, that kind of thing. And also we need to ask God, God, will you give me a further revelation of your glory? God hears our prayers and he answers us. So what are the modern-day Christian equivalents of going up a mountain? Well, yeah, like they can be the, the moments at the Royal Bath and West showground at New Wine in a cow shed or at Butlins, you know, on some campsite. And I will tell you about a few of mine. I have never heard the audible voice of God, I must admit. Although I once, I was a, I'm a solicitor, and I was once representing this lady in a mental health review hearing. And they were asking her about her so-called delusions, and she had these notebooks of things she'd written down. And they were asking her about the fact she said she hears the voice of God. And she said, well, my solicitor hears the voice of God, don't you, Claudine? And I went, um... Well, yes, but this is not about me. <laughs> and luckily, there was a vicar on the decision-making panel, praise God, and he just gave me this little smile. And I think, actually, I think they released her from hospital that day and they took off her section, so praise God. Um, but it was quite a funny moment when I was like, oh, I don't know what to say. 
Uh, but my first kind of mountaintop experience was probably when I became a Christian. And that happened at Soul Survivor in 1997, long, long time ago. Um, and so that was my cow shed moment. <laughs> I, I went with some friends who happened to be like the youth group of one of the churches in Catrum. And I kind of thought I was already a Christian. You know, I believed the Bible was true and I'd been going to a Catholic church up till then. Um, and then I walked into this cow shed and there were six or 7,000 teenagers worshipping. And the power of God just hit me. And I no longer just knew in my head that Jesus was Lord. I knew it in my heart as well. And the power of God just kind of hit me. And I fell over on my friend. They were like, are you okay? I was fine. It was just the glory of the Lord being revealed for the first time. And then it happened again um, at another kind of, it's like a Christian camping festival thing called New Wine. The Soul Survivor is the one for teenagers, and then there's one called New Wine for families. And I was in my early 20s, maybe about 23, so obviously only a few years ago. <laughs> and I just joined St. Barnabas Church in North London. It was only about the first or second time I'd been, maybe the first, in fact. Um, I wasn't walking very closely with Jesus at the time, um, because although I'd become a Christian in my teens, I didn't really have any adults to disciple me. My parents weren't Christians, and so I was just kind of going my own way. And then I'd gone off to university, so I didn't even have a church that I was in. So I wasn't walking very closely with Jesus. I was doing some stuff that I should not have been doing. I was in quite a bad place. And I decided, well, God obviously called me to go to this new church. I just didn't just randomly decide, but I did decide. And this girl called Charlotte came and befriended me and spoke to me. And like, she was quite full on. She was like, why don't you come to my house group? She like, wanted to be best friends immediately. And she was great, so that was perfect. She was like, come to my house group. And why don't you come to New Wine with me? So it's like the first time I met this girl, and she's like, come on a camping holiday with me. She obviously knew that we were going to be firm friends. And I said, yes. I don't know why. Like, I've just met her. I don't know this girl. But yeah, I'll go camping with you. And obviously, I love camping, so that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> so I agreed. And like I was saying... Sometimes it takes a little bit of effort to follow Jesus' leading. Here's this opportunity for me, saying, hey, do you want to come and spend time with Jesus? And, but it was, you know, it was camping, it was with this girl I didn't know, but I said yes. And while we were there, like we became quite good friends over the following months. And while we were there, one night, I was praying, and I had this sensation of the weight of God's glory and it was like the weight on my shoulders of the glory of God but I was lying down so that was a really weird feeling because it wasn't like pressing down it was like pressing that way so I was lying down uh, and I felt this weight on my head and it was like it was like a big like a crown it felt like the weight of a metal crown on my head and it was a revelation of the kingship of Jesus the fact that Jesus is king of my life and my identity in him as a princess, like a member of his royal household. And the weight of that stayed with me all night. Like I could feel it in my dreams. And when I woke up, I could feel the weight of his glory on my head. It was so weird, but amazing. And after that, I knew that Jesus was the king. Jesus was Lord of my life. And I knew his kingship. And I allowed him to be Lord of my life. And I walked with him more closely. I could not tell you what I was reading in my Bible at that time, 
what my daily quiet times were like, or even if I had any. <laughs> but those experiences are what stay with you and what you remember in times of hardship. Those crazy experiences, visions, words from God. That's what you remember. And we had another example only a few weeks ago when Graham told us about his sister randomly accepting an invitation to um, what's that, Spring Harvest. He went to the effort of inviting her and she went to the effort to attend. And they'll both remember that when she discovered that Jesus is Lord, he's the king. And they will both remember that. That was a mountaintop moment for both of them. So mountaintop experiences give us a revelation of who Jesus is so that we can know him better and follow him more closely. They give us confidence to minister with authority and faith to follow his commands. And I've discussed this with Dale and what I think God's calling us to do today is to ask for a further revelation of his glory. In fact, it might be the first time you've ever requested revelation from God and you might want to give your life to Jesus as a result. And it might be right here, right now, that God just goes bam and gives you a vision of Old Testament characters <laughs> and the audible voice. You know, that might happen. Or it might be another occasion. We just have to ask. God might lead you into something on another occasion. It might be a crazy vision, or it might be a still small voice, like one of Elijah's mountaintop experiences, when God spoke to him in the still small voice. But it's just our responsibility to ask. Thank you.